regardless of where you stand on the matter of data science sexiness, it's simply impossible to ignore the continuing importance of data as well as our ability to analyze, organize, and contextualize them. Data are changing how our businesses and societies function. They are being used to solve a ton of interesting problems and shaping the questions we can ask of the world around us. Hi, I'm James Lee, and this is Datacast. Join me for raw conversations with practitioners from the worlds of AI, machine learning, statistics, and data science. Hi listeners, this is Datacast, where a long-form and in-depth conversation with the practitioners to unpack the narrative journeys of their career. My guest today is Shea Sharma, the founder and CEO of Apple, a next-generation A-B experimentation platform that is designed to spur entrepreneurial culture. As the fourth data scientist at Airbnb and early data scientist at companies like Wellflow, Shea has been focused on the maturity curve of growth-stage company and how to establish data as a central stakeholder of decision-making. He previously led the team that developed Airbnb's knowledge triple and has led data teams focused on production, machine learning, and instrumentation integrity. So Shea, it is my great pleasure to have you on the show. Great to be here with you, James. Fabulous. So I want to start our conversation with your educational background back in the days. So according to my research, you went to Stanford to study electrical engineering and statistics back in the late 2000s. So can you share briefly about your upbringing, your academic interest growing up, and some of your overall college experience? Sure, absolutely. I grew up in the East Coast in Connecticut and then came out west to college to Stanford and was studying electrical engineering undergrad at first. And I think like most undergrads, you have a general inkling that this is a direction that's interesting, but it gets refined over time. I knew I wanted to build. I thought electronics and coding was really cool. So I knew I wanted to go in that direction. But over time, I felt myself just being drawn more and more to signal processing side of electrical engineering, which is how do you transmit and understand images, audio, sound, all sorts of things like that, information. And when going to those topics, I pretty quickly realized that like the more interesting problem is like, what is this an image of? Is this an image of a cat or a TV or what's going on or whatever? And so that that very quickly put me into the AI machine learning track. So I started taking a lot of those classes. And just while I was doing that, I quickly realized that like under the hood, so many of these machine learning algorithms were doing statistics. It was like that was the core of it. And then the computer science part was turning that into more of a scalable motion. So that got me into the statistics track where I learned a lot around just how do you understand the world? Like in a probabilistic sense, how can you say we reject the null hypothesis and thus we know this is true? I think it all adds up to something that ended up being really purpose-built for the data science industry that was to emerge right after it. And then, of course, it's very relevant to what I do today in experimentation. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing that context. Just out of curiosity, do you have any favorite classes you've taken back in Stanford? Yeah, I let's see. My favorite ones were, I liked most of the signal processing track. So there was one, which is like, how do you actually encode it, encode some information into like a signal that you can transmit? And then in a lab, you actually like write the actual assembly code and try to transmit it, understand it and all that. And it, it was just cool to understand 
but we use cell phones and stuff all the time. That's like sending packets of information all around. And so actually understanding how this stuff works is pretty interesting. Um, I also really liked the kind of electroengineering kind of hardware software interface class. I forgot what it was called, but it similarly got into this idea that these circuits, they exist in a kind of purely analog sense. And then you put them through a bunch of circuit gates and increasing logic and then FPGAs. And eventually you add up something that looks like a computer processor. And so it was cool, again, to see what that looks like because we use computers all the time. And to understanding, like, how do you go from this world of physics and waves and forces to something very binary and logical? That was very cool. And then, of course, in, in the statistics world, I really enjoyed the entire applied statistics PhD track, which was it was taught by Trevor Hasty, Rob Tibshirani, and bunch of these like really well-known folks and at the time it was interesting because like the machine learning world was like obsessed with things like support vector machines and just i still remember that in the machine learning class with andrew ang he said if anyone wants to dig into ask you to use a neural net you should tell them to go back to the 70s or something and it's like that ended up not being the case at all as deep learning was to emerge but these elements of statistical learning based class, like it talks a lot around the methods that I ended up seeing all over the place. But you talk about kind of principal component analysis, that sort of decomposition, like kind of regularization on linear regressions, so things like lassos and all that. There's a lot more workhorse things I ended up using in my data science career. Yeah, I think that class is pretty popular as well. And they do release lecture online. Mm-hmm. The book, right? Yep, exactly. The book yep. is called Elements of Statistical Learning. I wish I remember what the class was called, but yeah. It's taught by the authors on a three-part course. Yeah, I highly recommend it for most of the curriculum around the world. Yeah. So besides academic, you also intern at IBM and Quantcast, as well as doing research at the Stanford Center for Mice, Brain, and Computation. How did this engagement affect your Stanford experience? Yeah, they were great. The IBM one in particular, like that was in Japan and Tokyo. So it was fun to live abroad and do that. And then... I think in general, this is probably true of most people in data and statistics, is that it's cool. One of the cool things about it is that you get to play in everyone's backyard, right? You can choose among all these different problem domains and learn about them in this really deep way. Like, you know, understand the space in a deep way because you under, you see the data, you see what users are doing, you see what the dynamics of them are. And so I think especially like through my college career and then my early career, there's a lot of let's try out a bunch of different fields and see what data work looks like in them. So I did that internship at Quantcast and pretty quickly took away from that. It's like, I don't really want to do ad targeting for a variety of reasons. And so that was good to cross that off the list. The mind computer brain lab at Stanford was really interesting because that was a like neuroscience version of statistics. They wanted to check if the typical way you do brain studies, you see it you show a picture of a cat and if some part of the brain is firing more, like it was more blood being drawn there and then you make conclusions. This lab was trying to say, what if the way the brain works is not more blood drawn to a certain area? It was instead a changing of the rhythm of neurons firing. So it goes from something a little bit more chaotic to suddenly very syncopated. Like suddenly two sections of the brain are going exactly in sync. And they want to see if that's how the brain works. So you have to do these statistical tests that are much more at a signal level than just like a quanti- a number with a mean and a variance or whatever. 
So that was pretty interesting. And I had never really worked in neuroscience before. All the topics were very new to me. And so all around, it was just cool to learn about a lot of these different areas. I'm sure like exposing yourself to working in big company, to ad tech, to doing research in neuroscience, like enrich your overall mm-hmm. academic and professional interest, right? And you can identify what part you want to pursue afterwards. Yep. Everyone needs a statistician. That, yeah. that part's true. Fabulous. After finishing Stanford, you worked for about one and a half years as a research analyst focused on healthcare policy at Acument. Yep. So what exciting projects did you work on during your time there? Yeah, that was an awesome time. And after going from the machine learning track to statistics, I think once you learn about a lot of these kind of metric methods and statistical methods, like there's so many like really deep problems in the world that become really interesting to, to work around. And so this, in this case, it was healthcare policy. So, you know, how Medicare handles care payments, enrollment, fraud, all that sort of stuff. Um, the product I was working on was pretty interesting because it was not so long after Obamacare came out, the Affordable Care Act. And while there are a bunch of things that are very well known and visible, like the exchanges and all that, there was a whole bunch of little pilot programs around pay for performance initiatives. So the idea was the law said, we want Medicare to start paying better doctors more. And that's basically what the law said. It was like, very, what is it better? Then there were still remaining questions of what is a better doctor? How much more should you pay them? How do you control for all the confounding factors going in? Like doctors with sicker patients shouldn't get paid less. So the cool thing about Acumen was that we had access to the universe of Medicare claims, like literally every Medicare claim in existence for all of the history of when it was tracked. So you could do some pretty rich analysis and the end result of what you recommended was actually put into place in Medicare. It's now part of national healthcare policy. So it was really and like impactful work. It was cool to be able to dive into that so early as like in my career. In the end, policy work is very slow. Like I worked on stuff in 2010 and didn't go into place until 2014. I think especially early career people, you really need a faster feedback cycle. Like you need to quickly understand what is working, what's not. And then what are all the behaviors that lead to things working, which is both technologically and organizationally. So it was just not the place for me. And so I, I ended up moving on to Airbnb. Yeah. Thanks for sharing the context on how data and statistics can have a big impact in like sectors like healthcare and government, right? And I think it's kind of showing to you the, the power of statistical analysis for highly impact uh, decision like that. Mm-hmm. So as you just mentioned, you decided to move to Airbnb as the fourth data scientist in 2012. So my question is twofold. First, what about data science at Airbnb that attracted you to join? And then second, would you mind sharing some of your early work on building Airbnb's original ETL framework for yep. education? Yeah, absolutely. The reasons to join Airbnb, like it was just a special place. It was really special. In 2012, it was not a name brand and people thought you were weird for, playing, for staying in strangers' homes and everyone was queasy about other people staying in your home. It was definitely not a place where you joined and everyone was like, wow, what an amazing thing you did. But the company itself was, it just had a special culture. Like You walk in that office and it's very vibrant and everyone's super excited and there's very cohesive value system. 
I still remember I was meeting a friend who worked there and we were just going to meet up at a bar in SF. Mm -hmm. And when we were there, he arrived in a big Beatles themed school bus called the Magical Mystery Bus. And then all of Airbnb rolled out of there into the bar because it turns out it was the Airbnb happy hour that I was meeting him at. And I was like, wow, what kind of company does that? That's nuts. And every single time they would do something like that, it would always be a surprise. It would always be unveiled at like 3 p.m. on a Friday. So just a really special place. And it was so empowering. For people really early in your career, you got to do really cool things. The model training and hosting environments of Airbnb's first fraud models was a big part of that. That was my first project. Airbnb had just graduated to a level of maturity where hackers were coming after them. It was a real moment of, you made it. And so there was these kind of bad actors trying to defraud the Airbnb community. And we had to develop these ways of blocking them, of noticing when someone's like using stolen credit cards or making fake listings or taking over accounts or something like that. As everyone who has worked in machine learning probably knows, like the actual DevOps behind that thing of like, how do you scalably make models, put them up in production, monitor them and cycle them in and out evaluate them, et cetera, there's a lot of infra to build. And especially back then, there wasn't like any tools that were really going to do it for us. Mm -hmm. So we had to build everything from scratch. We settled on a system. We made a Java service that kind of did the online feature calculation and then fed it to this system that hosted PMML files. So PMML was at that point, something that might've been open standard of machine learning files. And so we had a system that would host that, receive this feature vector and then make scores and return it back. And that kind of infra let us build models across chargebacks, count takeovers, fake listings, a bunch of things. So it was all around very cool to go zero to one on these sort of things. Because I, I think machine learning, it's cool because you are literally productizing data. Yeah. But I think the less interesting parts, at least for me, was like once you build these first models, everything is iterating on models. Like it's using existing infra and just trying to improve the model. So... It was interesting for me because I like came into Airbnb and the data team doing machine learning. And I thought, I, and I think many data scientists really aspire to do production machine learning at a place like an Airbnb. Yeah. And I quickly found that, okay, I had fun with that, but I, I don't need to make my career about machine learning. I thought that kind of decision quality and insights generation and the stuff that kind of underlies experimentation was just more impactful, more interesting. And I went that direction. I see. That's a pretty, I guess, like big decision, right? Because that's how you decided to go in one direction. There's a specialization within data that, that you want to mm -hmm. focus on. And yeah, we'll talk about experimentation for the rest of the track. But I'm just curious, like, you were the fourth data scientist at Airbnb. What was the state of data science, especially in the first year when you... Yeah, yeah absolutely. So Airbnb data was very interesting. They had hired a data leader pretty early on as first 10 employee. And they worked with him for a long time and then eventually brought on a few more people once the company really started to scale. Early on, so much, I think the early data hire, he really focused a lot on just basic business reporting, like how many bookings do we have in Germany this week, sort of stuff. Yep. And then once it became clear, there was areas of the business that just needed data support, like scaled out from there. The first one was Airbnb went through a crazy land grab growth phase where it just needed to spread internationally and just put up a really solid moat around the business by just being the leading travel 
booking agency in Germany and Thailand and everywhere. That data worker did a lot of kind of supply demand liquidity analysis to see where do we need to put resources into getting more listings, where do you need to put more resources into putting more demand. So I did that a lot. And then Airme started getting defrauded and that's when they needed data scientists to do that work. So I was brought in. Then also we had a search ranking model and that was another place where it's, yeah, that we need a data worker to help with that. So it was went piecemeal by just going investment by investment. Now, I think the big thing is that while we think of Airbnb as a pretty sophisticated place today, like back then there was no infrastructure at all. There was just a bunch of my production MySQL tables, like the same stuff that underlied the app that you could pull queries from. And so we had to set up like a distributed compute analytics environment. We yeah. ended up setting up Pig and then Hive, which are these kind of Hadoop SQL-based things to do distributed compute. This was before Redshift existed, before Snowflake or BigQuery. So we set up that. And then for orchestrating the jobs, we basically did a big cron tab, just very basic scheduler, most basic of basic schedulers. And did that for a bit and quickly realized how brittle it was for data ops and ended up literally having to develop Airflow. That, that was around 2014 when one of our data engineers built Airflow and that was a really big seminal moment. Yeah. So many things eventually came after that experimentation and a lot of different tools. But yeah. early on, it was pretty bare. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing the context. And this data team at Airbnb, is, I think it's quite special in the industry because there's a lot of open source projects that have become hugely popular and so many alums from the data team Including you, start companies yep. for, on the data ML space. So it sounds like that. This is something special about the environment that encouraged like entrepreneurial mindset. It's a very empowering place. It really what empowered you to do your best work. Yeah. You then led a team of five data scientists to develop a novel knowledge management ensuring platform called Knowledge Repo. Yep. So can you go over the motivation? for building this knowledge repo and some of the knowledge tenant built into this platform? Yeah, that was a very cool project. So the problem we had was that when we first started doing data science work, we were like four or five people and it was pretty easy to disseminate tribal knowledge among five people and then across an org of let's say 100 people, 200. But as the company grew, suddenly we were like a thousand headcount and we had... 50 data scientists, it just became the case that like everyone was doing a lot of wasted work, just trying to reproduce historical work. Like we would say, has anyone looked at something like what does the booking conversion in China look like and what are the impediments to it or something like that? And of course, someone has looked into that before, but because that work was just like in a Google Drive somewhere or just a chart pasted into a chat somewhere, it was impossible to trust it. And so you just went back and did it yourself every time from scratch. So it was really wasteful. And then also whenever we would want to invest in strategic analysis, whenever we'd want to invest in understanding underlying trends and opportunities, the only people who got to benefit from it were like the ones in the immediate audience, the ones on the email thread or in that keynote presentation or whatever. But if you weren't in that group, you just never even realized this happened. So it was pretty stifling for any sort of investment in strategic analysis to know that not only would the audience be super limited, but it doesn't even hold up over time. 
because it was just not trustworthy. So we ended up building a system to say, we want analytics work to be trustworthy and communicable across the org and across time. Future generations can come back and look at this and trust it and use those insights. And then other parts of the org like could just go to a place and see if anyone has looked into something and discover the work. And so it was a pretty uh, lightweight system. All it was to take Jupyter Notebooks and R Markdowns, which had these nice properties that the visualizations were linked to the code. So there wasn't a separation of those. We added packages to connect to our data warehouse from within our Python environment. And then we built wrappers or post-processing capabilities to take these notebooks and be able to put them on GitHub. So that involves putting like the images and the visualizations onto cloud storage and linking to them instead of directly in the file, a bit of uh, validation parsing, stuff like that. And then suddenly once it's on GitHub, you can review it. You can have peer review and you can have it all in this sort of centralized place. And so once all the work was in a centralized place, then suddenly you can build a web app on top of it. And we made a blog reader, we made the ability to subscribe to topics, a whole bunch of social collaboration capabilities mm -hmm. so that people could keep up to date with the latest. And yeah, it ended up being a really big deal. Now that I'm at Epo, I see how widespread it's, it is in the industry. And I think if you are making investments into strategic analysis, into this sort of what are underlying trends that should inform our investments, it's really important to have a system like this that can lead to trust and discoverability and make it easy to communicate the results. I see. There's a lot of tools in the space on the category of data catalog. And I'm curious, would you consider knowledge reports like an early generation in the catalog? It's funny, when a lot of these data catalog companies are coming out, I had a bunch of VCs reaching out to me to ask that exact question. And I think knowledge of is, if you think of it, a data catalog is much more of a kind of operational tool. It's, you want to figure out how to split your users by business users versus not business users. And you just want to know, like, where do I find out what a business user is or whatever. So the knowledge repo is much more around taking a bunch of curated high quality work and centralizing it in a way that like non-technical stakeholders can like go and discover insights. Mm -hmm. So what does this table mean and what does this column mean? That wouldn't have ended up in the knowledge repo because it, it only concerns like data operators. The Got stuff it. that end up in the knowledge repo would be like, hey, like product leader, here's something that you might want to know, some insights we've discovered that would inform, should we invest more in this area? Thanks for clarifying the distinction. Now, during this whole period of working Airbnb, you also have established a culture of experimentation by contributing to the experimentation system and running 100 reps A-B tests at Airbnb. My question is twofold. First, why is an experimentation program the most impactful thing a data team can do? And secondly, which of my unpacking the evolution of Airbnb's experimentation platform since its inception in 2014? Yeah, absolutely. I think you're referencing a blog post that I wrote, which I said that experimentation is the most impactful thing that a data team can do. And a lot of that comes out of what I've seen at so many data teams before I started Epo, where because the modern data stack is so easy to set up, 
there's now a lot more data teams and these data teams solve basic reporting pretty readily. The idea of like how many purchases did we get every week for the past year, those problems are getting very easy to solve. But the problem I keep seeing is that like when you start a data team, when you decide to invest large quantities of money into data, you don't do it just to have a data warehouse. You don't do it to have like dashboards. The reason you invest in data is to have better decisions, to understand what decisions were good or bad and help inform future decision making. And to do that, you need data work that is really close to the point of decision, to the exact moment when decisions are being made. And experimentation ends up being like everywhere you look, it ends up being the thing that like actually deploys data into decision making, where it's no longer just a, oh, that's an interesting chart. I'm now going to forget it five minutes later. I go and do what I was going to do anyway. It now becomes a like, wait, you're telling me I, I'm not going to launch my thing because it didn't move metrics. Mm-hmm. Or, wow, this thing actually moved metrics in an incredible way. And now I get to know and understand that and socialize it and everything. So the second you start implementing these experimentation programs, it starts leading to all the things a data team wants to happen, which is that metrics are a central stakeholder in decision-making. People are proactively reaching out to the data team to understand how they can improve metrics. And that increased intimacy with metrics leads to investments at the data foundation layer, better instrumentation, better curation of data artifacts. Like all, everything starts flowing so much more once data is no longer a kind of nice thing to look at every now and then, but I'm going to ignore it into a like, I am, you know, putting very core consequential decisions through this framework. And I now want to understand how to win in that system. And talking about the Airbnb evolution, experimentation at Airbnb, it's funny because I would say like in contrast with maybe Mark Zuckerberg or Jeff Bezos, the founders of Airbnb were designers. They weren't people who were naturally going to be very quantitative in how they make decisions. So experimentation at Airbnb kind of came up not from a top-down way necessarily. It started out first because the search ranking team, like many other machine learning teams, you have to run experiments. But how do you even know one model is better than another model? You got to run an experiment and see if it's actually better. And also, when it comes to resourcing time, if you're going to ask for more search ranking engineers, you have to show that you drove booking, that you drove a, metri- a business metric. And so again, you need to run experiments. So they were the earliest pioneers of it. It was done manually. All analysis was done manually by a data scientists at first. Then they started to turn it into a dashboard that was self-serve, but it was only serving search ranking. It wasn't serving any other team. This is all a very familiar evolution of every other company. But the thing that started getting it moving more was there was a booking.com executive who visited Airbnb after he had left. And I remember he gave this kind of funny speech because he had to be very coy about what he said due to NDAs, whatever. But when he heard that we were not running experiments all over the place, he said something funny that was like, hypothetically, if I was the CEO or head of product of a booking online booking platform, what I would do is invest heavily into an experimentation platform and start using that place all over the place. And so having someone like that come in and say that right in front of the head of product and all these teams, like in such a clear way, I was like, okay, we need to do much more of that. So then we started investing into a little bit more. And then the moment that really broke it open was 
we had this one marketplace team that had an incredibly successful year. Like they were able to re-inflect Airbnb's growth in a way that was just very obvious the second you looked at the metrics and seeing bookings go up in that way. We knew it was this marketplace team because they ran the experiments. They actually could trace it down to very specific product decisions that actually increased metrics in a significant way. And so seeing company level success and being able to attribute it back to this team, as you might expect, that team got to absorb other teams and become really powerful. And all the culture and processes of that team became much more widespread in the org, including experimentation. So that's what really blew the lid off and made it a central part of the DNA. So just a quick recap about the platform is started now from the search ranking team and after you've seen the success with the marketplace team, naturally other product teams within the company also believe that this might be a good adoption for their workflow. And that's why they requested data team to yep. support them with experimentation, right? Yeah. And they spun up a team that was just the experimentation. It was cross-functionally pulled from data engineers, data scientists, full stacker engineers, and they just came together to make this really scalable workflow. Mm-hmm. And in terms of the architecture of the platform itself, can you talk more about that? Like some of the desired decision to ask yeah. this request scale? Yeah, absolutely. So I think what you see in these experimentation platforms is that there's actually a really common architecture, which is everywhere and it's one that makes sense. So on there are two basic inputs to the system. One is the ability to randomize users into groups and to do it in an idempotent way so that if you come back three days later, you're going to end up in the same group. So that's one piece of the architecture. It's, it's a bunch of like SDKs, clients that engineers use to randomize people in the groups. And then the other big input are all the metrics. So if you look at all the metrics that a company uses, you can start with just one, which is the search ranking team. They probably look at the number of searches, the search conversion, number of people, listings you view, number of bookings you make, whatever. But then you go look at the payments team and their metrics are like how many payments got fulfilled? What is the chargeback rate? What are the fees associated, whatever, a bunch of stuff like that. And so every team has their kind of pool of metrics. And so the second piece to this architecture was to centralize that and say, like, how can we have one source of truth centralized form of metrics so that when it doesn't matter who runs the experiment, they're going to be using the same metric. And from there, you have a bunch of data pipelines. Like there's a lot of pipeline complexity with experimentation. And so you have to calculate both the overall results and then your diagnostics and allow for some basic investigation capabilities. And then the last piece of architecture was just a web app to serve all this stuff, to make it really self-serve and make it really interactive, shareable, all that sort of thing. We'll revisit this part about the architecture later on when we deeper into some of your current work at Apple. But before that, I just want to step back into your career. Yeah. You spent about four and a half years at Airbnb. And then around, I suppose, January 2017, you decided to clear up from work to travel. What were some of the fondest memories that you had from a sabbatical? Yeah, I mean, it was a wonderful year. As you might expect, working at Airbnb for nearly five years, you build up quite a travel bug. So it was good to start going through a lot of those. I think the things I loved about that travel year, like my wife and I, we actually had a lot of 
family and friends who lived in a lot of different countries. And I think when you travel a long time, it can get pretty lonely if you don't have that. And so we were able to just visit a lot of friends and family in a lot of different places. So that was really nice to see them. And then also, there's a lot of different memories. I really liked biking down Taiwan's East Coast. Like they have such great bike infrastructure and the, the food is so good and so pretty. Reminds me of California a little bit. We really loved our time in Ethiopia, which is just an incredibly underrated destination from the food, which is very distinct for anyone who's had it. The coffee where like coffee literally began in Ethiopia, in the Kafa region of Ethiopia. The music, the history and nature, the mountains and the rift and everything. So there are a lot, a lot of different places. If you're like Senegal as well, and it would probably be a whole podcast itself to dive into that. But I think that the best thing was to scratch that travel bug itch, see all these friends and family and kind of just experience some incredible places. Yeah. Spending that whole year off to work, like when you come back to work, you feel like difference in what's, what sort of changed that you yeah. saw into? One thing is I was just like much more in shape because I was just active all the time. So that's what's great. But the other things is I always tell people like if you, I, I think everyone, if you can afford it, should take some real time off at some interval, like every six, seven years, take six months off or more and just have a proper reset. Yeah. And for me, what was really great about the year, it was like an intellectual reset because when you're traveling and you're in like a different hemisphere than your communities, you start to realize how much like those communities of yours are setting your intellectual agenda. Like they're living in San Francisco, especially at that time, there's all these people talking about how self-driving cars are going to change everything. And the, whatever the topic du jour were at those times, and it was just always now you're just going to be talking and thinking about these topics all the time. When the social networks go dark because everyone's asleep and you're in a different country and whatever, you really just get to say, what do I want to read about? And what do I want to learn about? And for me, I kept getting back into like kind of industrial policy, economic development questions because you just be in some countries like we were in like Singapore and like Korea and places like that. And it's like, how did these countries develop so quickly into such advanced societies when they were kind of peers of others? My wife is Sri Lankan, and they always say that Singapore and Sri Lanka were like at a very similar development state not that long ago, and mm-hmm. they've gone in very different directions. Why is that? So I, I found myself digging into that quite a lot sure. in terms of the people involved, the policies involved, and how do you actually lead to really large economic growth? Yeah, I think it's such a luxury to have that time off to pursue this different intellectual yeah. hobby, right? And to your part of getting out that intellectual bubbles that you might easily get stuck into, especially in a heavily tech-centric environment like, like yep. that barrier. After you came back to the US, I believe you spent the next two years living in Atlanta. Yep. And you work on a couple of different projects, ranging from doing data science consulting to working in the data science for a tech startup called Next Tracking and yep. even co-founding a logistics software startup called Southbox. So can you walk through this phase of your career? Yeah, definitely. My wife and I, we moved to Atlanta because after that travel year, we came back and we're like, we don't have jobs. We don't have apartments. We got nothing. So if we're going to move, this would be the time to do it. And I think we always were intrigued by Atlanta. We had a, a few cities we were considering, but Atlanta just won out. It was 
sufficiently interesting and different than what we had done before. So we moved out there and I didn't really have a clear idea of what I was going to do post Airbnb. I wanted to take some real time to explore, especially after that travel year. So I actually started off and I was really looking to the world of government technology. There was suddenly a lot more involvement of the tech sector into government, starting with the Obama era, putting together engineers to work on healthcare.gov. And then that kind of scaled out to a lot of different areas. And what I thought was pretty cool was that this data and technologist and government movement was starting to go to local governments as well. And I've always been more passionate in just out of my own personal interest on local government stuff than national. And so I was really looking into how to work on that problem, did a few projects, did some stuff here and there, but ultimately came to the idea that local government technology work, it's, it, your ability to have impact is so much a function of who is the executive leader, who is the mayor, who is the president, who is the whatever. And I, I think I would still like to go back to that world at some point, but only in, in the right mm-hmm. circumstance. So besides that, tried out a few different companies. And what was interesting about it is it's hard, it's crazy to think about it. But back then, all of what, five years ago, whatever, like no one would employ you if you didn't live in the city, right? And so it was really just the Atlanta tech scene that I could work with. There were not that many people, say, in the West Coast or whatever that were going to hire people in Atlanta. And so I ended up just starting a company to look after not finding any companies that really excited me out there. And so I started this kind of, we work for industrial real estate company with some other folks, a company called Saltbox, which is still going great, which was yeah. a, a cool exercise in that it was my first time doing fundraising and I had to figure out a bunch of marketing and go to market and sales and stuff like that. And it was like, I still think this, this kind of e-commerce entrepreneurial world is just very cool. It's this kind of business someone can own without a computer science degree or whatever. You can just have great business skills and be a e-commerce entrepreneur. After that, I, uh, you know, I ended up withdrawing from Softbox just because I was a technologist and it, it turned out to be much closer to a real estate play than a technology play. But it was still a very interesting journey. And uh, that really stuck with me coming out of that was starting a company was really fun and I wanted to do it again. So I, I think after that moment, I knew I was going to do something in the data tool space. Yeah. Before talking about some of the work on data tools, I'm just curious, was there any valuable lesson that you learned from that first time being starting a company? That you, yeah. I mean, it, yeah. in a lot of ways, like most kind of first time founders at the time, like there's a lot of basics you learn. Like one big thing is the lifestyle of being a founder. You start to get used to that, which is like, you know, you are giving birth to a new company. And so that's very time intensive and very emotionally intense. The other is just the importance of go to market, especially as a startup. It's very often that you might have some good idea, but you have to figure out how to position it in the market, how to get the word out, how to get awareness on something that never existed before. So it was really cool learning a lot about that. Absolutely. Thanks for sharing this yeah. lesson. So you spent an, another year working as a data scientist at Westflow and helped build out the experimentation system from scratch. So yeah, how would you describe your experience working there? It was great. Yeah. What I loved about working at Webflow was knowing that I wanted to go into something entrepreneurial down the line. I really wanted to kind of report to like a CTO or a CT level person. 
just someone who was really close to strategy and to the founding story. And so Webflow is an opportunity to do that. I reported to Brian Cho, the CTO, and which is he was an awesome guy. And he's, we work together on Epo now. At Webflow, it was great because it was a nice way to see what does data look like in 2020? Like, how has the landscape changed since Airbnb? And I'd done a bunch of kind of consulting, contracting stuff before. And so I had a little bit of taste on that. But this was like a full-time job. So I could see it much over a much longer timescape. Yep. And it was, that was when a lot of kind of underlying principles behind Epo really started to crystallize. So one of them being like, wow, even in all of these companies I met in Atlanta or all across the world, everyone now has like a cloud data warehouse and like DBT or Airflow. Like you can just assume everyone's got these like infinitely elastic publicly addressable databases that are the center of the universe for everything analytics. And there's now this ecosystem of tools to get stuff in there and out of there and to work with it. This is when a lot of the reverse ETL tools were just coming up. Stitch and Fivetran were, I think Stitch had to exist, but Fivetran was new. Just like all these problems that were such a pain at Airbnb were just snap of the finger solved now. And so it, it was really interesting to think, okay, if that's all completely solved, what's next? And when I went through it, I was realizing that even having the centralization of data and the ability to mold it in your hands, like what you do with it, how that drives change was still pretty elusive. And that was in a lot of ways, that's what my contracting career was about, was saying like, how can you actually drive outcomes with data? And at Webflow, like most other venture-backed companies who have product market fit, the name of the game was growth. Like how do you grow, right? And so I was supporting marketing teams, I was supporting the product growth teams. And by and large, there was a lot of things we could buy to help here. But the thing that was like a huge, obvious omission was experimentation, where at that point, I was like, I already, I already built this stuff before. I don't really want to do it again. And so I went on the commercial market to see, can I just buy the thing? Talk to Optimizely and some others. And it's like, wow, this, these tools look nothing like what I built at Airbnb or what exists in these companies. So I ended up building it again and building culture and everything. And you know that it really st stuck in my mind how, man, every time you install an experimentation infrastructure, the conversations change, like just the way you think about data just fundamentally changes. And so that was really interesting for me. So yeah, ended up marinating on the idea and eventually spinning out Epo. Absolutely. Yeah. I think that was a great transition into current role in your job with Apple. You know, you've been the founder and CEO of Apple since February 2021, I believe. And yep. Apple is the next generation AP experimentation platform that powers customer-centric decision-making and entrepreneurial culture. And in fact, I also have written a very detailed manifesto on why you started Apple dated in June 2021, explaining why growth teams are entrepreneurial teams, why 90% of experimentation workflows are manual, and why now is the time for modern experimentation tooling. Can you share the story behind the founding the company? Yeah, absolutely. I mentioned before, experimentation had always jumped out to me as this like really ROI, like a great ROI data activity. And the thing that also really struck to me is that like everyone wanted better tooling there, but very few actually had the internal capacity to do it. Airbnb, it like in Netflix and these companies, these are not normal companies, right? They're able to employ large staffs of like, PhDs and like 
super veteran engineers. They probably have an overabundance of software engineers compared to what they need to do. And if you look at a company like a Webflow or any other growth company, it's like, we have three data scientists. And at Webflow, I was probably one of a handful of people who have ever run an experiment before at all, much less new statistical details and like what to do in these situations. One of the big takeaways I had at Webflow was like, even if you just build the Airbnb system there, it's not going to be sufficient because the Airbnb system also had the Airbnb staff. And that included all sorts of people who understand statistical testing and product science and stuff like that. I really wanted to build a system that could deliver Airbnb experimentation results to growth stage companies who may or may not have this level of technical staff. Can you build something that doesn't require so much expertise, doesn't require so much education? It had a visual, it like conveyed statistical results in something much more layman language, right? Into plain language and clear decision-making. So that, that was the vision of it. And I went around kind of shopping that around. I had three or four other ideas as well. And what stuck me is that I really wanted one of these ideas to be able to sell five times before writing a line of code. And this experimentation one is the one that got there because it's just such a hot topic. Every growth team and every team above Series B basically realizes they need to do it. But there's no way to purchase Airbnb's infrastructure. So that's the thing we're bridging. Thanks for providing that context a little bit. So it took you about at least a few months, right? Before you actually a lot of discovery calls with... Yep, yep. Practitioners and then to the solidified his set hypothesis that you yep you want with Apple exactly I was fortunate that at that point I had a pretty wide network of data leaders so I could really go and pitch a lot of people and the VC early VC ecosystem is also very good at helping to intro people to validate their ideas but yeah once I started seeing not only could I convince people to sign a piece of paper saying they would purchase Apple for this amount of money. But also starting to get some word of mouth, people freshly getting introduced, saying, hey, I hear you're working in the experimentation. Like, that, that was enough yeah. signals. Like, okay, there's something here. Perfect. Let's dissect some of the key capabilities that are back into the Apple product. And I got a chance to watch through the demo and look over the website as well, just so I could get familiarized myself with, with the product. So Apple provides a granular status dashboard for every running experiment. Experiment configuration via SQL snippet, simple metric-centric visualization, and even traffic view for proactive monitoring. Could you mind expanding on some of these capabilities for the listeners? Yeah, absolutely. And one easy way to think about it is to say, we're, we wanted to build an experimentation platform that was native to the modern data stack. And that made an Airbnb level experimentation available to any sort of company. And so what that concretely means is that like, we built a very metrics-first experimentation platform. All these other experimentation commercial tools, and I think the reason that they don't get adopted is that they focus so much on traffic splitting and randomization, like the setup of an experiment, and then they punt completely on metrics and analytics and actually understanding who outperformed who. It really struck me how like all these companies would purchase an Optimizely for 500K or more a year, and then not even use the analytics at all, not even trust it, and then have their data team do it. So we wanted to turn that on its head and say, we think the analysis and the metric side of experimentation is actually the most difficult part and that randomized yeah. users is like a pretty easy problem. Um, so we built this to separate the two sides and say, we have a randomization SDK. 
you can randomize people into groups if you don't have one already. But if not, feel free to use whatever you want, whatever you have in-house. And then we're going to build a, a way to create a centralized metrics library and serve that into these experiment reports that are both visually engaging, very informative, and highly interactive so that people can like dig deeper, understand root causes, do some diagnostics. So there's a lot of pieces more to that, but I would say it's experimentation as a data team would want it with a lot of control over metrics and built to serve all of the different types of experiments from products, machine learning, marketing, whatever. Yeah, thanks for providing a little bit of context. And what is the most powerful feature of Apple Billet? Is this a statistical technique called QF, which is short for control experiment using pre-experiment data? And yeah. I think main benefit here is to help accelerate the experimentation speed. So can you dive deeper into some of the problems caused by long experiment durations and some of the benefits of using QF to ban time in experiment? Yeah, absolutely. Cupid is it's a really big deal. I as context, like Cupid is a statistical technique that is completely mainstream if you work at a place like an Airbnb or a Netflix. Like 100% of experiments use Cupid there. Like you, if you have run a cube experiment at Airbnb, you have used Cupid, but it has never been available on the commercial market up until we brought it out of the, out of the woodwork. And so what it concretely means is that a, a, an experiment that would take, let's say, two months might only take a month and a half. And getting weeks of product time back is really impactful. Like really, in fact, think of all the, how many more ideas you can test, how much quicker you can learn when you have that. The way it works is it, it's, the analogy I always like to say is it's like noise canceling headphones, where what did noise canceling headphones do? They read in the ambient sound and then they subtract it from the signal and make it seem like it's the deadpan outside. That's really what, Cupid is doing is it's reading in the ambient signal from all the data before the experiment and essentially subtracting it out from the experiment data so that all you have left is like the treatment versus control effect. So that's kind of what it does. And again, at least just faster experiments. But I think it's a really powerful feature for Epo because Cupid basically shows if you decide to do your own analysis in like a Tableau dashboard, you're literally costing your product team weeks of time. Now your experiments will go slower. But I think in general, it touches on a broader conversation, which is that there is so much impact available in modern statistical methods that people just aren't really aware of because it's pretty niche expertise. It's not something that's very mainstream in these companies. And so you just end up seeing like T-tests and Z-tests and basically high school statistical methods used as the workhorse, but the realm of like research and in statistics has really led some powerful stuff. So like today, we use Cupid, we use sequential analysis methods, which have their own advantages to be more robust to an organization. And we have a lot more stuff coming down the pike in terms of, yeah, your growth stage organization will have experiments that run faster, more accurately, purely through math. I'm just curious that throughout this whole process of product development, I suppose you personally could have to write uh, a lot of re- literature review on statistics, right? Just to kind of understand yeah. what's the state of, because I'm not sure as a field, because we mentioned earlier, you, you, yeah. you, know, you studied statistics, but that was 10 years ago. So I'm yeah, sure. Exactly. I, I Admittedly, I did more of that before I started the company and had kids and stuff. It definitely was much more up to date, but we have amazing statistical advisors, the people who have literally pioneered these methods and we have a staff of 
well, I call them statistics engineers mm-hmm. who are like statisticians who know how to code. And so we have a lot of people who are really keeping up to date with stuff. Plus, I will always have an interest in this field from my days in grad school. So I personally like to keep up to date as well. Yeah, absolutely. Actually, I'm curious to hear a bit more about that role of statistic engineer. Can you tell more for the audience? Yeah, absolutely. When data science was earlier in its adoption, when it was originally, it was just like Facebook and LinkedIn and then Airbnb and some others joined in. Like back then, when you bring on these data scientists, it tended to be more of like these unicorns who like were both amazing software engineers and also new stats and data and stuff. And they could contribute in the same way as an engineer, but they also were familiar in language data. But as the data ecosystem has evolved, that's really changed where like now, even Airbnb, but then especially afterwards, you bring on a lot of these people who are like kind of computational social scientists who were very good at doing analysis and but like you would not have them contribute to your production code they don't have that skill set they're not familiar with workflows or design patterns of how to read a code base and stuff like that it's pretty rare to come across that and now in the world of the modern data stack with dbt and snowflake and all that you have most of data teams consisting of analytics engineers Mm -hmm. who are purely in the world of sql so like we really wanted to hire people who were in that old mold of data scientists who are like, they can commit to a production code base, they can understand a production code base and all the design patterns within it. But they also really know statistics and can implement those solutions. So it's very hard to hire these people. But because of who we are as a company, and I think we have a special draw to you if you are in that background. I see. So the main distinction between a statistics engineer and an analytics engineer is the focus on statistical oh, like no, background. No. Oh. There's definitely that. So there, like a difference between an analytics engineer and I think a data scientist is that a data scientist probably has a bit more of a statistical mm-hmm. toolkit. Yeah. And you might say an analytics engineer has better database modeling skills or something like that. Got it. The difference between, in my mind, between a statistics engineer and a data scientist is that a statistics engineer can commit production grade code. Mm. They can act, they actually are like engineers in the truest sense of they're going to be on call. They're going to deliver via an API as opposed to a Jupyter notebook, that sort of thing. So again, it's hard to find these people, but we are fortunate in that if you are that type of person, we are a special place for you. We we'll talk about hiring in a second, but I just want to continue the thread on the product a little bit. So you mentioned in your answer previously that Apple is cloud warehouse native and the product integrated with most of the major cloud data warehouse platform like Snowflake, BigQuery, and Redshift. So generally speaking, like how do you see the concept of an experimentation platform fit into the quickly evolving modern data stack and to the, in, in some sense, the modern growth stack? Yeah, absolutely. So I think the way I think about the modern data stack is there, there's a specific s- set of tools and beliefs that underlie it. The tools are a kind of very elastic, centralized environment that will bring all the data from every player into one place and let you work with it and eventually serve it out. So it tends to be Snowflake, Redshift, and BigQuery, the big three. Databrooks now has a, a SQL trace. We'll see if that kind of gains as much market share. But... That's the center of the universe. And then there's some way of dealing with it 
which is these orchestration tools like DBT and Airflow. The mm-hmm. underlying beliefs is the idea that like you need a centralized place to determine like what are what is revenue, what is a purchase, what is a user. And then once you have these like most clean curated versions of things, then you want to serve them out everywhere else. And so in a lot of ways, what the way Echo fits into this is to reinforce that set of beliefs. You know, yeah. in contrast, every other tool out there basically wants to create its own data warehouse by having you send out data to them and then they define what revenue is, and they define what purchase is. And it drives data teams insane to say like, why are the numbers different in these two places? And then you have to go and reconcile them and it's very annoying. So Epo, we were trying to say this work of saying what are the core business entities and KPIs and stuff and what is the cleanest versions of them? We just want to reuse that same stuff so that we are just reinforcing your underlying investments in data quality. And then in terms of the modern growth stack, it gets back to the beginning of this conversation around Reforge and places like that, that I think one of the kind of pithy lines I like to say is that it's funny that we call them data scientists and product managers when I feel like in today's world, you have data managers and product scientists much more (laughs) where it's the world of the data team is so focused on standing up this modern data stack and the pure canonical versions of things. And it's really onto the product teams to actually engage with science, which is I have a hypothesis that if you do this, users will like it more or whatever. And I have a hypothesis that like, if I change this, then this behavior will happen. And you see this with the rise of Reforge, right? In institutions like that, like where suddenly there's a whole wing of product leadership that is all about science. But the problem with these growth teams is that they just don't have the tools to do their job. If you come out of Reforge and you're like, okay, I want to start experimenting with growth loops and see how to drive improvement. The classes will say, here's a scrappy way to get started with an Excel spreadsheet. But if you're going to try to make this into a practice, into something that like it's a pretty widespread way of operating, then you need better tools to enable it. And so Epo squarely fits into that to say, if you want to use all that knowledge from Reforge and product growth, you're going to need an experimentation framework that can go help you and not that won't undermine you. That'll actually help you. Yeah. Most companies successful these days follow that product growth methodology. So I'm sure like there's the need for a solution like Labo is just inevitable, right? Yep. Uh, just on that part, um, I'm curious, would you say the main user persona, Apple, the growth team or the data team or, or both? Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question. So I'll say what team inside of an org tends to use Epo. It's usually a growth team or a machine learning team at first, and then it becomes the whole company. You once people start to want to run experiments, but growth teams and machine learning teams tend to be early adopters of this stuff. Who is the target persona? Like the person we talked to? The way I say it is it's always the product-minded data leader and the data-minded product leader. So it's leading yeah. into that like experimentation is a collaboration between data and product. And that's really how we see it. So yeah, thanks for clarifying that. And just one final note about the modern data stack is uh, you mentioned earlier about like how Apple take a matrix first approach to product development compared to traditional tools. I think lately there's also uh, like this new concept of the matrix store, right? The matrix layer. I'm just curious, yep. like, was there any interaction or 
yeah. overlapping between experimentation platform versus yeah. the new category. Yeah, absolutely. Epo today has something like a metric layer inside of it. Mm-hmm. But the idea is to integrate with metric layer platforms as they become a thing. Like I work watching that space pretty carefully because the second a metric layer product starts to gain a lot of market share, we want to integrate with it. It is, yeah. it is our belief that metrics don't just belong to experimentation. They are used in a lot of different areas and most companies would be better off having something like a metric layer. Mm-hmm. But we just have to wait and see. As many data teams will tell you, like the idea of centralizing what every team wants the definition to be into one place can be somewhat fraught. And we'll see what emerges from that whole conversation. Yeah, there's, there's room to grow and there's room for debate and we'll see how the yeah. market works. That's, that's, exactly. that's now, I watched this talk that you gave back in Data Castle in early 2022. And talking about some of the core elements of the modern experimentation stack. Yep. I think you were speaking on stage with Chad Sanderson from Convoy, right? About some useful yep. there as well. And in this talk, you talk about these different elements like randomization, metrics, sufficient statistic, statistical test, diagnostic, investigation, yep. and reporting. And uh, could we touch on a little bit about a couple of this blog when you give your answer about the, uh, the design architecture, the Airbnbs? experimentation platform, but yeah, could Mike bring over some of the most relevant takeaway from that talk on things that, you know, users of a potential experimentation stack should pay attention to? Yeah, absolutely. Part of it was just to be helpful and just say, if you wanted to build an experimentation infrastructure, like here's what you'd have to do. You know, here are the pieces of it and whether you're doing it manually or you're doing it in a platform, like it's definitely happening, right? You definitely have to randomize users. You definitely have to calculate metrics. You definitely have to check the diagnosis of the test. The broad takeaway I wanted to convey to people, though, was that a lot of people end up deciding they want to build experimentation platforms. And I think a lot of that is just because the commercial landscape was pretty bare for a long time. But part of it as well is that like you look at any single individual problem experimentation and it doesn't look so hard, right? It's like, yeah, I could randomize users. Like I can calculate these data pipelines. Like I can run a sample ratio mismatch test and slap on a statistical test or whatever, what's the big deal here? And the thing I wanted to convey in that talk is that experimentation, the reason why so few companies succeed at it, and it's very few companies who actually get it right, is that it's not one deep technical problem. It's a large number of medium-sized problems that all have to orchestrate together really well. So if you think of all the things involved in experiment, you have an in-app randomization SDK that engineers have to use in the proper way. An improperly set up experiment basically tells you nothing. Mm-hmm. Um, then you have a bunch of, of metrics which have to be defined and again, centralized. So what is revenue? What is purchase? And that version of that metric has to like not have holes in it. It can't be like, it has all purchases except for the ones in Android or something like that. Like, you can't have holes like that. Then in terms of the data pipelines, like the experiment data pipelines are tend to be some of the gnarliest ones. If you look at a place like Airbnb, experiment computation accounts for like a third of all computation costs of the entire org. Like it's a pretty large set. And so there's a lot of gotchas around there. And then the statistical tests themselves, like while it's easy to slap on a t-test, like a t-test actually involves a lot of expertise. Like you're not supposed to look at the results until the end. You have to meet these assumptions and all that. Um, 
And then in terms of reading the reports is like, how do you explain to people what a p-value is or whatever, right? Like there's, there's just a bunch of individual problems where like you might, like a, a small number of people might be able to solve a handful of them, but like getting the whole system to work in orchestration is like a much larger endeavor. Yeah, it sounds like on the surface, things are simple, but I, if you kind of pull in the code and, and then bearing yeah. out it's, there's a lot yeah. of stress with and, you. And the big thing is like all of those pieces I just mentioned, like you have to do it. It's just, do you platformize them or do you rely on experts and manual workflows? So it's, if you want experimentation to take off, so much of it is around covering the whole company and driving a large velocity of experiments. So you have to platformize it. And then once you realize how many things you have to platformize and have to work together, it turns into a different type of problem. Yeah, thanks a lot for sharing that context. So one thing that I really also enjoy about you is that you little quite a bit of writing about this topic. So you have a pretty active Substack where you kind of share the journey from that your team at Apple was working on. For some of the companies looking to get started with experimentation, you wrote this blog post that recommend that they must understand their experiment overhead and pick good hypothesis to test. So would you mind unpacking this recommendation further? Yeah, definitely. I think that sometimes companies really early on especially if they have a bunch of alumni from like a Facebook or something, like they think they need to run everything through an experiment, like how operated at Facebook or Airbnb. But the problem is that that's only a good idea if you have good infrastructure, right? If the act of doing an experiment involves four or five people in a week of their time or two, and then waiting like six months for results and the whole thing is done manually and all that, then the ROI of experimentation is going to be not very high because you're only going to get a few of them out there and the success rate of experiments is something like 20-30%. Or that, that I should rephrase that. The success rate of product launches is actually 20-30%. So if you want to start really understanding what's working, what's not, you have to just run a lot more experiments. Not four a year, but you have to run like 50. And to get there, you just need some scalable infra. So I wanted to write that just to say, if you want to have an attitude of we want to run a lot of experiments, then you have to invest at this infra level. There's no other way to do it. Yeah. That, that was an underlying trend there. Gotcha. You also have written about this concept of the designer gap in extraction yeah. tools. How has your team at Apple's leveraged design best practices to build trust into experimentation? I'm very passionate about this really think that experimentation is a problem that's uniquely levered on design because these product teams, they're essentially taking a trust fall, right? They're saying like, we are going to put all of our, essentially our careers through this value system of this thing that's black box feeling, involves a bunch of stats and numbers. And I both don't fully understand it, but it's going to matter at my a time for promotions and stuff like that. So it's this like highly consequential but complicated thing. And when you look at these reports, I've now seen like hundreds of experiment reports at different companies. Most of them are unreadable. Like just unless you are a statistician, unless you are like one of the people running the experiment, like you, there's no way you'd read this report and actually understand was this good or bad? Should I launch it or not? What are exactly are explaining things? And one of the things I was very passionate about with Epo, and this kind of gets back into what was the difference between Webflow and Airbnb in terms of installing this thing, is that like at a place like a Webflow, they needed much more guidance 
on like, how do I make decisions with this number? What is a p-value? What is the experiment of? What did I learn? And so to accomplish those things, I think you need a design mindset that says, we need this report to essentially read itself, to be like something any sort of person could read. To do that, you need to have ideas around like visual hierarchy. If your eyes fall on a page, like what should they hit first? What should they hit second? How, what should be the star of a show on this interface? What context does someone come in and coming in knowing? What do they not know? And the problem is that most experimentation tools are built in-house and they get no design resources. So they don't even confront those problems at all. I, I call it the designer and experiment tooling. And it's a place we've invested very heavily in. Yeah. Be sure to include that piece on the show notes so people can yep. look and read. I think there's some very concrete recommendation on making design cultures and building the product. You're also in the process of writing a series of articles on aligning company leadership and experimentation teams. And the first post is about metric strategy. Yeah. Uh, so just out of curiosity, what are the topics you plan to cover in subsequent articles of the series? Oh, on the metric strategy thing subsequent articles, I think there's a lot that gets into this kind of intersection of technological and organizational problems of running growth and ML practices. So the metric strategy article was basically saying that every company right around series B or series C has this moment where like up until then, a lot of product has been centered on the founders, like they are the main product thinkers and most of product OKRs are like build this thing build XYZ. And if it's done, then you've met your OKR. And the problem is that once you reach a growth phase and you have something that has product market fit, then you really need to start thinking much more in a metric standpoint and say that, why do you want to build this feature? It's actually to drive weekly active users. So instead of just dictating what to build, you should just say, I want more weekly active users and push down the product strategy into the teams a little bit more and say, I would like to hear from all of you. What do you think will drive weekly active users? So if this shifts from going from a, what I call a shipping strategy, where all of the OKRs are like build XYZ, to a metric strategy, where it's like all of you teams, like go and improve this metric, and I'd love to see what you do to drive it. Yeah. So it's something that inevitably happens at every company once they start hypergrowth, because top-down product strategies just starts to show its limits. And... Moving to that metric strategy is really once you see you build a data team larger, you run experiments, you have a more scientific approach to things. So that, that was very much what that series is aimed at. Yeah. Well, no. let's take up your experimentation hat, put on your father hat. Yeah. Hiring is a critical responsibility of any early stage startup father. What valuable lesson have you learned to attract the right people who are excited about Apple's mission of changing corporate culture everywhere? Yeah, I think there's a bunch of lessons. I think one of them, there's a lot of very basic lessons that you learn once you're a hiring manager. One is that you get a lot of benefit when you can really cleanly articulate the role. What is this person going to do in this role? Who will they work with? How will they be measured? The time spent on crystallizing these sort of things like actually really helps you both source and sell. Because then you can really paint a picture of, yeah, if you join, this is what your life is going to look like. They can really imagine themselves at the company. It also helps you avoid mistakes. 
because you can upfront do a lot of diligence on like, why are we bringing this person in? What exactly are they going to do? So having a really clear idea of why you're trying to hire people and what this role is for is really invaluable. And then the other thing is there's a real gravitational force that happens when you bring on really great people early on. Great people bring on other great people. It's like a very, there's very much a force of that. So it, it, as a founder, it's so hard to hire early on. Like your first three or four hires, like it's just fighting to nail to get them in. And it feels like you just need to get people in, get going. But it's very much the case that like taking the time to get like a really high quality hire who is both skill set wise incredible and also culture wise really incredible, that's going to save you so much time down the road. It's going to make it way, way easier to hire. Yeah. I'm just curious on, on the note about culture, was anything that you just about cut, setting up culture, cutting principles for yeah. every stage? And- yeah. Yeah. I think I had a bunch of cultural principles that I cared a lot about. And so I instituted. So I, I believe in a culture of entrepreneurialism. That's the ethos of the company. And yeah. we're early startup. And so I wanted people who were like very opportunistic. They were very good at finding areas to drive impact that were very comfortable owning things end to end. So I really wanted entrepreneurial people and I really wanted great communicators. I feel like so many productivity issues and interpersonal issues are usually rooted in basic communication failures where two people disagree and one person can't even repeat back the other person's opinion accurately. Can't repeat it back in a way that the other person would agree with. And I've always been a big believer in that if you can at least start with people who have like really high bandwidth communication that like you say some, they say something and the other person just hears it. Yeah. That's, that matters a lot. And the other thing I'll say is that like, even if you're not a great orator, you're not a great speaker, like mm-hmm. you can be a good writer. You maybe can prepare your remarks. There's a lot of ways to get better at communicating. And we care a lot about that at Apple. It's rare. Yeah. Excellent point. Also, Finding early adopters is notoriously challenging for any enterprise product. Companies like Netlify, Cameo, yeah. to name a few, have been using Apple to power their experimentation programs. So yeah, I'm just curious, like in the early days, what are some of the challenges that you have to, to overcome to find some of these design partners? I will say, if you're considering starting a company, you should consider starting a company where it's not that hard to find early design partners because you can get better at executing, you can get better at hiring and all this stuff. But the thing you're going to go sell, you better make damn sure that there's market pull on it. Because mm-hmm. if people don't actually want the thing you're selling, that is tough. I would actually say that this is part of why I shopped three or four ideas and saw which one was easy to find design partners. Mm-hmm. And I went with that. Obviously, there's some basic sales skills, whatever, but if it is challenging to sell your product at the outset, it's not going to get that much easier. So you might consider a different idea. Yeah. And just like this company, these partners specifically, they like come from a variety of industries. So there's like, like when you work with these design partners, how do you iterate your product in a way that that can generalize for future conversation? Yeah. And you just want to be really responsive. Like your early design partners, like their feedback is way more important than their money. Yeah. So 
if you want to get lots of feedback, you need to act on their feedback quickly. Show them how responsive you are to that. So it was a delightful experience and they go on to give you more feedback. Mm -hmm. So that's all really important. I also think it's with, again, before you even start the company, as you're still doing this market validation, have a really clear picture of your ideal customer ISV. I think that some founders get a little too, they start taking on different partners who are like out of bands for what they built the company for. And then that ends up being a big distraction. In, in Epo's case, we knew we wanted to serve growth stage consumer and PLG companies mm-hmm. selling to their data teams. And that was like, so basically your Netlify's or Potentials are like right down the middle. Yep. In comparison, there would be like, we didn't really want to sell to Walmart because of the variety of reasons. And we didn't want to sell to like your YC companies, like your very early kind of pre-product market fit things. It was very much this thing. And I, I think early on with design partners as a startup, you have a clear picture of your ideal customer and just folk, pile up those. Don't get distracted by a bunch of others. Yeah, that's an excellent advice as well. So if we talk about dealing with, with your employees, with customers, and the final group that I want to quickly touch on is investors. Apple has raised $19.5 million to date from top-tier firms like Menlo Ventures, Amplified Partners, and a host of one-on angel investors from Airbnb and the Reforged community. Yep. What fundraising advice could you give to the other founders who are seeking the right investors for the startups? Yeah, I think like raising money is something that the thing you want to focus on is actually the fundamentals of the business. If you do the market validation properly, you have convinced yourself that there's a serious market demand here and you have proven it by these design partners and various other means, then the investing kind of takes care of itself. Like the main thing is to demonstrate the appropriate milestones for the amount of money you want to raise. So like early on, you need to demonstrate that there's a real market there. And you can do that even without code. You can do it in variety of reasons. But like if you demonstrate that there is true market demand here, then and then you build in like ship it out a few times that'll get you started in terms of fundraising and then once you get to a and b then there's different appropriate milestones in terms of growth and revenue or whatever other metrics it is but i think the key with fundraising is if you have a strong business fundamentally you will get what you want out of the fundraising process so it's best to just focus on the fundamentals of the business absolutely yeah Georgia investors also like have track record investing in grow software and as well as data software. So yeah, it's just completely. Like, you know, just completely. Yeah, and like, suppose you actually have great fundamentals of your business and you're now out there deciding between investors, which is a very fortunate position to be in, have options. Every founder has their own kind of lens on this stuff. For me, I focused very much on the partner more than the firm. Because there are all sorts of firms, different level brands and everything like that. But the partner is the one you're going to talk to every single week. Who's going to go to bat for you at the next fundraising round? Who's yeah. forever going to be attached to you? Just make sure that partner is someone that like is a true partner in the business. Like It's going to be, yeah. you're excited to have them along the ride. Yeah, phenomenal. 
So, Shetan, at this point of our conversation, I want to move into the final closing segment in which yep. I'm going to ask you three rapid-fire questions and can give quick answers for the listeners. Number one, name three people in the broader data community whose work you admire. Yeah. I really admire, like, the locally optimistic creators. So that's Mike Kaminsky and that crew. I, I think that it's such a unique community. And I feel like it really brought together people under, a, like, a set of values for data teams that I just think is great. So just for adding this community lens to the data landscape, I admire them a lot. Another one would be uh, Sean Taylor. He's like a causal inference style influencer on Twitter. I admire him both because he's just a really great thinker on these topics and is innately curious and very open-minded and really enjoys it. But also, he's a really nice guy. He's like just very generous with his time. And I, I, I just I don't want to let that out too much. Don't take advantage of Sean Taylor. But he's a really nice guy. And so I really enjoy my interactions with him. And then besides that, I really admire who's the one who made Fast AI. I think his name is Jeremy Howard. Yeah, Jeremy Howard. I, I think the ethos of Fast AI really, really resonated with me. I really like the framework where the idea is that it feels sometimes with a lot of these frameworks coming out of academia is that they're trying to justify a kind of further complication of things and yeah. like the need for more expertise in the name of some like marginal gain in power. And I feel like the fast AI framework puts that on its head and says, we want to make it so incredibly easy for anyone to like spin up a deep learning model by just like making a whole bunch of default choices. And we think it's better for people to start off by actually creating a thing and then we'll explain the theory. Mm-hmm. Plus him having all these online courses for free, it's just so generous. It's incredible for the community. So I think those three are really great. Yeah. And it sounds like that framework is what you try to achieve the same with exactly. experimentation and exactly. the statistic for the broader public. Number two, what is one book that you recommend for data people to cultivate in entrepreneurial mindset? For cultivating entrepreneurial mindset? I think there's a good book. I think if you're talking about cultivating entrepreneurial mindset, like the best ones are probably things like the mom test, that book. Things like saying, how do you identify real problems out there that are worth solving instead of just mm-hmm. kind of what people tell you? Um, but honestly, I think entrepreneurial mindset, like a lot of it is not in books. It's more in kind of communities and stuff like that. I really like Lenny's newsletter, Lenny Richeski's newsletter. I feel like that has done a lot for me in terms of cultivating myself as a product leader and as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. It was very fascinating to hear for all of these different brand name companies, like how did they get their first 10 customers? Mm-hmm. It turns out a lot of them got up from outbound sales, even the ones that are consumer companies, which would never pick up a phone ever again later. But they, how do you get started? You just got to bootstrap your way up there with a bunch of outbound sales and phone calls and stuff. I thought that was a really great resource. It's a great recommendation for sure. Then finally, imagine that you could send out a single tweet to all the early stage data practitioners on Twitter. What would you tweet about? Yeah, so by early stage, you mean your early career? Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, I would say find data opportunities where you can get really fast feedback cycles and drive impact quickly. I think that there's some early stage people, they get drawn into research, even though they're not necessarily research people. And like research is not a place you're necessarily going to get feedback cycles. It's a bit slower and 
circles around academic uh, before you actually see what customers think. And then also, if you work at, say, like BDP and enterprise companies, then like you don't really know if your data work actually drove impact all the time. Like you did something useful, you gave this kind of marketer a dashboard, but did that lead to better decision making and better metrics? You don't really know. In contrast, if you join like a consumer company or a PLG company, you can do things like run experiments. You have way more data volume to operate with. So there are certain companies which are just more rich in data problems. And I think especially earlier in a career, like it's worth seeking those sorts of opportunities. Fabulous. I think that's a, that's a great advice and really great way to conclude our conversation. So Shatan, I really enjoy our chat today, learning about your education back in Stanford, some of your work in healthcare policy at Acumen, your journey at Airbnb as the early data scientist working on knowledge dissemination, ETL fraud detection, as well as kind of your getting started with experimentation program there, some of your work at Webflow as well, kind of continuing on that thread, as well as the current journey with Apple building a next-gen AP platform to basically democratize experimentation for the broader, you know, PIG companies. A lot of good insights regarding um, the product itself, the modern data stack, experimental machine culture, matrix strategy, as well as tactical things on hiring, finding early customers, and fundraising. So I'll be sure to include everything that we discussed today into the show notes. This is going to have a chance to take a look, follow up, consume your content, check out Apple, has wish to bring experimentation culture into the company. So yeah, I, I really enjoy spend, spending time talking with you today and I hope you have a great rest of your day. Yeah. Thanks, James. Have a great one. Well, that's the wrap for another episode of Datacast. Hopefully, you have learned something insightful and interesting from my guest today. You can read the show notes from the podcast website at datacast.simplecast.fm. If you want to get instant updates when a new episode is released, either follow me on Twitter or subscribe to my newsletter on my website, jameskelly.com. It is my greatest pleasure that you listen to this podcast and take advantage of the data revolution coming upon us. Goodbye for now.